All right, welcome back to Blair and Barker. Game two of the four-game series between the Jays and the Orioles goes tonight. 7.07, first pitch on Sportsnet, 590 to fans. Sportsnet, Mr. Barker and myself will be along after the game to break it down on Blue Jays talk. Mm-hmm. While this game is going on, I imagine a few folks will be keeping an eye on the Tampa Bay Yankee series as well, which gets which gets underway. Ah. And I don't know. This is this this is gonna be a fun weekend in the American League East. Uh, it's early and et cetera, et cetera. Early. But I think it's gonna be Early's uh, over, buddy. I don't know. It's it, it's gonna be interesting to see where the where everything stands after mm-hmm. the Yankees are through uh come through here on the weekend. Um you know so much of what we talk about with the Blue Jays is is their offense and Bo and Vladdy and in, in particular. Um and of course Alejandro Kirk this year. Mm-hmm. And um and that's that, that's kind of understandable, I guess I guess that a lot of people do focus on offense. But I think Kevin and I are both on the same page here that the the foundation of this team being twelve games over five hundred has been laid by the starting rotation. Absolutely. I think it's 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 to me it's 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 pretty clear. Mm-hmm. And uh a a pitcher who is I'm not gonna say emerged as an important part of the starting rotation because we've seen Ross Stripling play a significant role with this team Ooh. you know big time before this year. Uh but Ross Stripling is very much uh part of that of that foundation and we're very pleased that he joins us on Blair and Barker. Ross Thanks uh, so much for taking time out to talk to us today. We uh, we greatly, greatly appreciate it. Um, I know that you have responsibilities as a father in addition to a baseball player, so uh, we we do appreciate your time. If I'd ask you what the biggest difference between you as a pitcher in 2022 and you as a pitcher in 2021, what would you say it is? Well, first off, good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, that's a good question right off the bat. I would say, you know, I answer this question fairly often with kind of the Greg Maddox quote that a pitcher is a never finished product, which is you're always tweaking something, trying to get better, trying to keep guys off balance. I'm in my seventh year, so the book is out on me and my stuff and what I like to do to lefties and what I like to do to righties. And I think this year it's just kind of even more um, – you know, more pitchability in all counts, I guess is one way I would put it. Like, I'm just kind of throwing the kitchen sink up there at any count at any time. I'm mixing in a two-seam for the first time really in my career, uh, you know, maybe three to five in an outing where I'm trying to get in on a righty with a two-seam, and I've had some success with it. And I think that's making some right-handers uh, respect the inside part of the plate where I actually don't do a whole lot of work. Uh, previously in my career. So I think that has opened up some other pitches for me. But really, it's just, um, you know, right on right changeups more than I ever have and just kind of mixing in everything in any count and trying to keep guys off balance that way. Ross, whenever I watch you from from year after year, you, you look more confident. You know, again, when I tried to play, confidence is a thing. Like, that's a tool almost. You have to... You have to develop that, and you just seem like when you take the mound, you're more confident. And you just—I think you just mentioned that mechanically, you're you're not tipping pitches anymore. You're you have a better line to the plate. You mentioned you can throw the kitchen sink, but there's that you have to buy into it. Where did you where have you developed that confidence from year after year to be able to do all the things that go into being a hybrid? I think that's what you can call yourself, right? A hybrid to have enough confidence to to go out there and, and get it done. 
Yeah, great question. I mean, that's half the battle, right, at this level. It, it really is. Like, we all have the stuff to be here. But what separates the guys from the ones that make it and stay and the ones that just get a cup of coffee or, or you know, whatever it is, it's, it's confidence. And it's the ability to go out there and feel like you have the advantage in your hand, which pitchers should. I mean, the best hitters in the world, the Mike Trout, still get out 70-plus percent of the time. The advantage is in the pitcher's hands. And we control the game. We control the pace of the game. The hitters have to react to us. And I think, you know, it's just kind of through logging reps at the major league level that I've gotten more confident over time and, um, you know, did well as a Dodger. And then you come over to the AL East, which is a total different juggernaut, mm-hmm. and struggle and kind of reinvent myself, make a massive mechanical change last year uh, with Pete Walker where I was really struggling and we made a change and started having success. And then you start getting confidence again from, from pitching well and, and having success in this division. That's really tough facing some of the best lineups in baseball night in and night out. And I think it just kind of builds on itself. And, um, you know, here my third year as a blue Jay, just starting to get more comfortable in my role and feel good about pitching this division and pitching in the AL and, um, you know, giving us the chance to win a baseball game every time I get the ball, which is, you know, all I really want to do. I tried to explain to to fans who listen to us on an everyday basis about how important OO is to a hitter and how important it is to a pitcher. But I want you to explain how important it is that you can throw multiple pitches OO for strikes. What does that do for you? And what does that do when you can do that to a hitter? Well, I think count leverage is maybe the most important thing in the big leagues. It, you know, I, I think the guys that can get ahead and stay ahead and put guys away are the elite pitchers and the pitchers that are going to stay here. And I, I really do think getting into good counts is the separator at the major league level. And as far as what I can do, OO is important because these guys are ready to swing. Mm-hmm. And for one, they're never off a fastball. And my fastball is my pitch that I give up the most damage on. So I really, really have very little room for error. With my fastball, I usually have to be black to, you know, basically throwing that thing exactly where I want it. So, oh, oh, these guys are ready to hack, and they can do damage, oh, oh. So, you know, if I can throw a curveball, or maybe I threw him a, a first-pitch fastball the first time, now I can throw a changeup the second time. He's looking for fastball. Throw him a changeup, gets off his barrel, maybe some soft contact, get an efficient out there, um, you know, or something that changes their eye levels, changes the speed, all that stuff. You know, it's important to get into the at-bat. And then go to work. Uh, you know, with me, uh, we've kind of been talking about I can throw anything at any time. i got to be able to get into the at-bat, right, to start throwing anything mm-hmm. at any time. So that OO pitch is really important. You know, sets, sets the table for what that at-bat's going to be and hopefully get ahead and then, um, you know, start expanding from there and start, you know, trying to get to their weakness and, and throwing certain pitches and certain counts that I know can get soft contact or a swing and miss. And, and that all starts with, oh, so that's, you know, it's a really good question. Guys don't talk about it all the time, but I, I really do think count leverage is one of the most important things in all the big leagues. Yep. Ross, when, when people talk about a, a premier starting rotation, a lot of times they talk about internal competition. Uh, but it seems to me from the teams I've covered that one thing I notice when you get a really good starting rotation is I don't know if it's so much competition as the group kind of develops a personality, even though they're all individuals and you got individual things kind of develop a personality. Do you see that happening with this group with Alec doing what he's doing? Kevin in his first year here, um, you know, you say is here, of course uh, you're here and, and Brios has joined the team last year. And now he's here kind of on a long-term basis. It, it seems to me that, that this group is kind of developing almost a group personality. 
Yeah, it's it's funny you say that, and I think it's funny to say that it stems from Alec Manoa. It really does. I mean, if you look last year, he's the one that started the stuff where we go down and watch the starter warm up and walk in as a group. That was Alec. He wanted to do that. And we went along with it. And then we had turnover. We lost Robbie Ray and we lost Steven Matz. We get Gosman and Kikuchi, Barrios back in this year. I'm kind of coming and going, Hunjin coming and going. And the mainstay has been Alec Manoa, and we're still doing the same thing. We watch each other's bullpens. We go out and watch each other warm up. We walk into the dugout together. And it's spot on, man. I think that we do have like a little identity as our own little group here of starters, and we have pride in what we do. And there's competition because we all want to do great. Mm -hmm. Like Alec goes six shutout, Gosman wants to go seven shutout, or Alec punches out eight, Gosman wants to punch out nine. You know, that's that's the fun part of it. That's not really competition. It is in a way, but it's almost like us just kind of building on each other and getting confidence as a group, which is really fun because there's nothing better than when a whole rotation goes a turn or two turns pitching really well and building on each other and feeling confident as a group. And then the whole team kind of feeds off us, I think, as you touched on before I got into the show. Um, starting pitching – starting pitching kind of runs the whole show there. So when we're, when we're pitching well and doing well as a group, uh, it seems like the whole team kind of follows. You know, the other thing that really impresses me about this group, and, and I've covered baseball since 1989, I don't know if I've been around a group of starting pitchers that are as capable of talking about what adjustments they're making and as open about talking about what adjustments they're making. I almost get the sense that you guys... You guys kind of enjoy doing that, right? You you enjoy, like, the changes you made last year and then seeing the results. And, you know, we talked about Alec and some of the changes he's made with his slider and Gossman's got to do some stuff and Kikuchi's a work in progress and Brio's had all this stuff going on this year. I get the sense that you guys as a group really like that whole, the, the intricacy of, of getting better, right? The, the work, the grind that goes into it. Yeah, I'd say that's spot on. And it's it's funny you went, you know, really Manoa's just been Manoa from day one. Right. While the rest of us are on the side, you know, making constant adjustments. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think you're spot on because this group is always seem like there's kind of something going on with each of us. Never panic, but always, you know, Gosman had kind of a weird one against the Twins. Is he tipping? It, are they making a massive adjustment as a lineup against him where they're trying to lay off his splitter or whatever? And then he goes to Detroit and pitches great. Um, I've made some big mechanical adjustments. You know, Kikuchi has basically changed his breaking ball a handful of times this year and been open about it. Pete Walker talks about it too. I, I agree. It does seem like we're more open as a staff than maybe than others, than most, right? At, you know, at some point there's kind of like you can divulge too much information and we're probably like treading that line a little mm -hmm. bit. But I think – we like it because fans hear it. You guys hear it. You can kind of see us doing it from one start to another. And when we go have success, we make an adjustment. We go have success. It's kind of like the fans feel it with us yeah. and they're in it with us. And, and um, you know, for me, when I made the massive adjustment last year with my hands and went the next outing, I think I went seven scoreless against the Rays. It was like a big narrative. And it was cool to see people, like, shouting me out on Twitter and saying, like, man, congrats on making a big adjustment and it working and stuff like that that only gives you more confidence. So I think we do it the right way. I don't think we're necessarily telling anything to our right. opponents that they don't know, or that gives them any kind of advantage. Um, you know, so I, I think it's, I think it's cool that we do it. So I think it's, you know, also fun that you bring it up and notice it. Well, when, whenever I heard Gabby Moreno was getting called up and I heard he was going to catch you. And I was thinking to myself, if I were Ross, how would I feel about that? And then I started thinking about how you were doing 
and you're you you know you're having a lot of success doing some things on the mound. And I wonder how hard it is working in a new catcher when you're doing well. Now, on the flip side of that, you know, as well as anybody, when a guy gets called up and you're doing bad, they're going to throw you in there because you're doing bad. You don't really have a say-so in who you, who's catching you. You know, you laugh a little bit. That's sort of the way it is when, whenever you, you know, you're going through some things. I just wonder how you, that transition from, you know, shaking off just little things that you and him back and forth when you're doing well, trying to get him on the same page so you continue to do well? Yeah, great question. I, was, um, I wasn't necessarily stressed about it going, going into that start, but I knew you know, it was probably going to be a little bit of a transition and we were probably going to have some hiccups and all that. Honestly, it went 100 times better than I thought it was going to go mm-hmm. um, in a variety of different ways. I mean, I, I, I really, really like Gabby and the way that he works. He came and caught my bullpen two days before. At the time, he didn't know whether he's catching me or not, but he, you know, took the initiative to come catch me and, and start seeing my stuff and my setups. And I got with him like ten minutes before my bullpen and even afterwards, and told him, you know, kind of it because I'm picky, man. I throw a lot of pitches and I have setups with, um, you know, with before two strikes and then different setups with two strikes. That if I'm trying to punch a guy out, I want the glove in a little bit of a different spot and five different pitches. So that's a lot times fourteen other pitchers that he's trying to get used to. Right? It's a massive workload on a new catcher. And as far as me, I thought he did amazing in the start. I probably shook more than I've shaken in my career. But with the pitch com, he can kind of just go right down the line. Mm-hmm. And actually, I, I think I knew what he was thinking a lot of times. And I was just maybe it was one pitch different. So um, it's not like he was way off or I was worried about his pitch con. I think he did a great job and uh, really got thrown into the fire with me because it's five pitches at any time. So, um, you know, I, I was actually really, really happy with – with his demeanor, with how he came out of it, with asking me questions, like everything about it I thought was, mm-hmm. was great. So, um, you know, now two, three days removed from that start, feel even better about where we're at and hopefully keep working together moving forward. If you don't talk to a young guy and he just walks behind the, the dish and, and squats down and catches your ball, can you, can, you tell, can you tell by the way he catches if he's a good catcher or not? Um, man, at this level, I think – everyone's going to be a good catcher, right? I I think this is the big leagues. Like, I don't know that I could really tell at this level if you're a good framer or not based on just, like, throwing you a couple pitches. Mm -hmm. I think, let's say you go catch a game and you got eight black to maybe slightly off sliders, like really good breaking balls. How did you catch those? That kind of seems to be the set. Or, like, really nasty two-seamers, like Mm -hmm. a Dustin May, Gratterall, two-seamer like how are they catching those or the low ball that you see Kirk get you know they'll be like over a course of 100 pitches it'll be like eight to ten of how they do they stab at them or do they stick them you know and that's that's kind of what you can tell but I feel like that's more like power arms like how do they catch the <laughs> power arms with me um you know I'm not really like overpowering the glove in any way so I feel like I, I don't uh, I'm not too difficult in, in those ways Ross, we really appreciate your time thanks so much that's terrific insight good stuff, stuff man thank keep, you so much keep it going yeah, thank you, guys. Take care. It's Ross Stripling of the Blue Jays. Uh, yeah, it's – I like I said, that that rotation is uh, – I mean, it's it's something else. And they're, they're – I mean, they're set up, man. They're set up for a while. You know, we, we were just talking about the Orioles. And uh, you look at where, where this team is, and um, it, it, it's funny, you know – I was trying to remember who the hell I was talking with yesterday. It might have been Siddle. 
it was somebody, but we were talking about the Hyunjin Ryu contract mm-hmm. and how I think there are contracts, but when you look back at the contract, it becomes more meaningful for what it signified or the doors it opened compared to the actual return the pitcher gave you. Like, this mm-hmm. is why I, I never thought, it's pretty clear he on Jin Ryu, I mean, we'll, we'll, we still don't know what the, the results of the, you know, the, of, of, his, of his second opinion were. I think we all kind of assume that he's probably not going to be pitching anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people are going to look at that contract. But, you know, it's, management never brings it up. You never hear anybody, Ross or Mark, say, ah, that Ryu contract, man. You know, the ownership doesn't mention it. Um, I know fans, I think sometimes fans and media, we tend to look at a bad contract and keep harping on it being a bad contract, et cetera, et cetera. But think about, you know, I just think it was so important that you establish that relationship with a Scott Boris client. I think it's important that you send the message to folks around the game that you have a young core, you're excited about where that core is, you think you're going to win, and you're going to spend money mm-hmm. to do it. And, and that's why when I look at this rotation now, with Barrios locked up for a long time, uh, Manoa's not even reached arbitration yet. You've got Gossman for a while. Kikuchi's here for three years, and I don't know about you, but you know what? I think Kikuchi at some point this year is probably going to figure everything out, and he's, he's going to be giving you five and two-thirds or six. I just think he... I, that is a such a great place to be for an organization. And then you you put in a guy like Ross Stripling. Um, you know, if, if there is... I kind of thought going into the year that at some point, if Nate Pearson wasn't up here starting, we were going to be having the discussion, the Jays really need to go out and add another starting pitcher. You know, and maybe they still do. Maybe they still need to add another starting pitcher. But the fact that Ryu is hurt, Kikuchi has had some stumbles. Um, Pearson isn't been up to the majors yet. The fact that we're not at kind of at panic stations with the starting pitching because Ross Stripling mm-hmm. stepped in there, like that's huge. I, I look back at the, the contributions this dude has made over two years. They're remarkable. It, it, he's, he has, I mean, he's, he's prevented things from becoming... A crisis. Normal, normal people can right? relate to Ross. You, 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 you can actually think you can go out and throw 91 miles an hour and flip a curveball and throw a, a good arm speed change up down and away to a lefty and down and in to a righty. You, you, you can actually relate to that and you can root for him. And th- that for me is you, the, the, all the changes that he's made is because he has to make them. Won't be a big leaguer. Gonna make some decent money. Make some changes because the way you were doing it. <laughs> That heater, that's good hitting. That's BP hitting stuff. He even said it like, oh, yeah. I got to live on the black, and my misses with that thing got to be real good, if not great, every time I go out. And just I, that's why I mentioned the OO, and I've been saying this on on Jay's talk, I and I've been saying have. this. This is a giant deal that when I'm standing on the on-deck deck circle and I can see a guy to my buddy in front of me who's basically the same kind of hitter that I am, he can flip a breaking ball, or he can throw a changeup, or he can backdoor a, a cutter, or he can throw a sinker, or he can just do different things OO to get ahead. Now, all of a sudden, it's churning. 
Do I still want to be that aggressive because I don't want to get a little rollover to second base, or do I take that and fall behind? Because you know the more you fall behind, the less chance you got of succeeding at the big league level. Takes you to a whole different level yeah. as a hitter because now you're not only getting that guy at the plate thinking, you got that guy on the on-deck circle going, oh, no. Now what do I do when I walk to the plate? It is a it's a different animal, and that's why I brought it up. And he gave a great answer to that because it's not a big topic. Everybody always talks about efficiency and three pitch action, which they should. That's a big deal. Right. But you got to establish something early. <clears throat> I can do this because what I'm doing over there is I'm taking information and saying I'm eliminating that. Yeah. He can't throw that for a strike. I've eliminated that. So now I only have to worry about two things instead of five things. That, for me, is the difference with him. And he's got a lot of confidence in throwing it, all of them, which is a big deal. It's remarkable how the, how, the, how, the, how the simple stuff people say about baseball is so true. How important it is to get ahead. Now we call it count leverage. But you're always told, pitcher, it's important it to is. get ahead. It is. When I played, it was a heater down and away. That, that was the way they got a hit. Now, heater down and away ain't going to work. Bat planes and yeah. dudes are trying to get the head out and trying to create loft with your swing. That ain't going to work. So now hitters or pitchers have figured out ways to go against that. And I just think that makes – you see Alec Manoa do that. You How? see Barrios doing that with the two-seamer and not so much the changeup, but he can you know, manipulate, do something with his thumb, change the grip to have 12. We even saw 12-6 from yeah. Barrios. Because yeah. he's a he's a three quarter arm slot to get on top of that thing three quarter and be able to twelve six it early in counts takes you from a medium level to a whole different level because it gets a hitter thinking think long think wrong it's always been the saying and it'll continue to be the saying that's why I always say simplify that thing see ball hit ball and people look at you like you got three heads well it's true. And when you're not doing that and you're overthinking it, it looks like the Blue Jays looked the first month of the season. But that's what pitchers are trying to do to you. So it's just cool to watch a guy have buy-in because he has to, not because he wants to. You want to stay in the big leagues? You want to make some decent money because now you're a, you're a family man. You've got kids now. I just I love it. Like, he's bought into it. He's a smart dude. He gets it. He understands who he is. He's a hybrid. He laughed when I said that, but... It's just, it's cool. He accepted the new catcher, which is not the easiest thing to do yeah. when you're going good. And that's why I asked that. It's different when you're going bad. Because you know what they do when you go bad? They'll throw a guy out there and say, go get him, figure it out. But when you're going good, yeah. then you got some say-so in that and you got to figure it out together. It's it's cool. Yeah, I, I, I like it. I like I like the way he described Moreno's reaction to the, you know, the importance of the importance of asking the right questions, the good questions, because nobody likes to waste their time. No. And, yeah, it just feeds into stuff that people, even yesterday, just kind of out at the ballpark, people around the team, you just chat to them about Moreno, and this 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 picture really is emerging. See, I think it's... I, we've talked about how, how we're... We we sort of kind of avoided the whole chemistry thing and and the fun and the dugout thing and all that for the most not part. Not avoided it, but but I mean it's not. Sometimes I why think are that, you doing it when you stink and well yeah that's that sort sometimes of thing. I think think the idea that everybody in the dugout is talking about baseball all the time is over. That's there's a lot that's of never stuff. Never been in a dugout. There's a lot of stuff dudes are dudes are talking about. But having having okay. ha, but yeah but having said that. I think it's 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 interesting watching the way this group has kind of, from what people were saying yesterday, kind of pulled Moreno in early, like how he has fit in. It's a it's 
it's an interesting group in that it really does seem to be able to create an instant comfort zone for a lot of guys. It's about the com- communication there. factor between coaches and players saying, this guy's going to be a part of it. We need you guys to accept that and figure it out. The quicker you can figure it out, the better off our team's going to be, and we're going to win more games because of it. Takes big leaguers to figure that out. Again, this just says a lot by everybody that's having the conversations have bought into uh, he's a good player. He's going to be a part of this down the stretch. Let's figure all these things out. You know, there's going to be some bumps in the road. That's part of it. He's 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he say that out loud. Yeah. He's 22. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we've got a pair of tickets to give away to see the Jays and Yankees on June 19th. And uh, we're giving away tickets all year long on uh, all season long, I should say, on Blair and Barker. It would make no sense to give away tickets in the winter because there's no games. But uh, we're giving you the chance to win Blue Jays tickets all season long on Blair and Barker, whether you listen on the radio or on the podcast. All you have to do is text the correct answer to our daily baseball trivia question, 590-590. Yesterday, we asked you, how many World Series titles do the Yankees have? The answer was 27. It feels like 100. It feels like 100. <laughs> the real question is, how many World Series titles do the Yankees have in the 2000s? But anyhow. Ooh. Um, look at you. Yeah. Today's question is frankly an embarrassment. It is. Who is the Yankees' all-time leader in home runs? Mm. Hold it. There's a little read I have to do on the bottom here. (laughs) Make sure I got. Who is the Yankees' all-time leader in home runs? Text the answer. The 590-590 for your chance to win Jays-Yankees tickets for Sunday's game at the Rogers Center. See rules at sportsnet.ca slash 590. I mean, I'm going to go to the text line right now just to see, just to see if anybody's got any answer other than that. Let's see. Mm. Let me see here. Because that's a pretty, pretty obvious. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe it wasn't that bad a question after all. Maybe it wasn't that bad a question. Mm. Or maybe I'm just old. It could be a combination of both, but there's some there's some intriguing answers out there. Mm. There's some answers that I would not have come up with. Anyhow, our friend Howard Bryant uh, of ESPN has got a book coming out on Ricky Henderson, the life and legend of an American original. And uh, if you're of a certain age and a baseball fan, you know about Ricky Henderson, the player. If you covered baseball, there's a whole litany of stories about. Ricky Henderson, you know, the whole John Olrood story, you know, standing in first base. Hey, I played in Toronto with a guy who wore a batting helmet, too, when he was in the field. I mean, all this stuff. They're, the Ricky stories are R- Ricky stories are legendary. You know, Ricky, you, you, you don't have to you, – you get a front seat at the bus, the front of the bus, because, you know, the team bus, you've been here the longest. You've got tenure. Ricky says, ah, I didn't have tenure. I got 18 years. I mean, all this stuff about Ricky Henderson, all those stories about Ricky Henderson – Howard Bryant 
will lift the veil on it. He will tell us if they're legit. And most importantly, and this is what I love about Howard, we'll talk about the uniqueness of Ricky Henderson and the uniqueness of Ricky Henderson's career and his numbers, given the way the game is played now. You had to see Ricky Henderson play, folks. You had to see it to believe it. Howard Bryant will tell us about it. It's Blair and Barker on Sportsnet 590, The Fan 360, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parker's back leg bits in DM me at SN Jeff Blair. And uh, we will select questions. We've got a few already. A reminder, Barker and myself would be doing Blue Jays talk tonight following the Blue Jays game against the Baltimore Orioles. 707 first pitch right here on Sportsnet 590, the fan. And Sportsnet. Enjoyed that conversation with Ross Stripling. Tremendous. I learned something. It's interesting how those dudes are so open about about stuff, though. No, no, like, no, not those as dudes. A staff. Not those dudes. <laughs> he is. Yeah. Oh, a lot of them are. When you not talk like to them that. about their stuff. Not like yeah. that. Like, he is. Here's what I got, dude. Good luck hitting it. <laughs> like, there's no surprises. I got five of them. I'm yeah. going to throw all of them in any count. We're going to find out if you can hit it. And I, I'm going to throw my fastball when I have to throw it. Not because I want to throw it. That's basically what he said. Hmm? You know, every time you, uh, I mean, you, 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 you watch a player, doesn't matter what sport or what era, and you watch a great player and you always kind of say to yourself, man, who's going to be the next guy that's going to come along and do this? Who's going to be, who's going to be the next Barry Bonds or, mm. you know, the next. I thought I was going to uh, be the next. Henry Aaron. I know you did. The yeah, next yeah. Henry. Pick a sport, any sport. Who's going to be the next LeBron, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Quite often, though, I think you find yourself looking at an athlete and going, yeah, I don't know if we'll ever see anything like that again. I don't know if we'll ever see Usain Bolt again. But our friend Howard Bryant uh, of ESPN has authored a book, on Ricky Henderson, the life and legend of an American original. The book is out now. Howard joins us on Blair and Barker. Howard, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We trust that you're, you're doing hey, well. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? You make a, you've made a point in interviews I've read about this book, and I have not seen the book yet, and I will get it, and I will read it, but I've not seen it yet. You made a point that I hadn't thought of. I was going to ask you, why Ricky Henderson? And I understand he's an interesting, you know, he's an interesting dude. He's an interesting topic. He comes from a, you know, there's, there's just, there's a great backstory to him. And you make a point that I hadn't thought, thought of. And this was in an interview you did in NPR. You said, what makes this project so much fun for me is that you're never going to see what he did again. 3,000 hits, 2,000 runs, 2,000 walks, and 1,000 plus stolen bases. Because they just don't play baseball like that anymore. I mean, we are not going to see another Ricky Henderson, are we? Flat out. We're just not. No, you're just not. Unless there's some massive shift in course correction to how the game is played, 
I mean, Ricky stole fourteen hundred bases when they did steal bases. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, how are you going to get? I mean, last year the major league lead in stolen bases was, was I think, forty-seven. Yeah. God. I mean, that that's it, it's just not what they do. And then you know, I remember talking to Billy Bean about this. About are you going to see another Ricky? And I asked him what type of player Ricky would be today, and he said he would be Mike Trout. We would, emphasize, we would emphasize the power, de-emphasize the speed, even though we know he has it, and he would be more of a home run speed guy instead of a speed home run guy. And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting, but a Ricky Henderson who is not a threat to steal 100 bases and go at will is not quite Ricky Henderson. Yeah. Uh, it, it is. Uh, but I would, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was thinking, but I was, it was really fun to do this book, and you're saying why did I want to do it. The reason why I wanted to do it was really twofold, Jeff. I mean, I think one of the, the biggest reasons was because it's been such a tumultuous decade, and the stuff that I write about, whether we go from steroids to Trayvon Martin to Ferguson to Eric Gardner to kneeling to protest. And I just really couldn't hear myself anymore. And I wanted to do something that brought me back to why I really like sports. So one of the reasons why I really enjoyed the game. And I thought that I was having real trouble connecting. Mm. And I thought it was time to go back to, to remind myself as to why, why we watch these games. We watch these games for the players, for what they can do, for how they make us feel, for how unique they are. And I was thinking about, is, is there a subject out there that checks off all those boxes, but also still allows me to have a book that's got some impact, that's got some weight to it, where, but where 80% of the book isn't about steroids. Mm -hmm. And so there really weren't that many guys that I found compelling enough. And of course, Ricky just hits it because the one thing we don't talk about nearly enough with him is that he absolutely obliterated the record book. Yeah. Howard, I, I wonder what Ricky would have thought, and maybe you've asked him this, about rule changes, like bigger bases. What would Ricky say about that? I asked him about all of the, the changes in the sport, and he doesn't really like any of them. I mean, Ricky, Ricky feels like he's old school. He feels like the game is still the game. It's the same wheel. It's always been. But the people who run it are trying to make it more complicated than it is. Like, he talks about how... The like I was talking to, to Mike Rizzo about this when I was interviewing Mike about Ricky, and he was telling me that the Washington Nationals' philosophy is is that you've got to steal at an 85% success rate to make it worth it. In Ricky's day, 75%, if you made it 75% of the time, that was good. And Ricky was like, well, why would you assume that the other two guys coming up behind me are going to get me across? <laughs> why aren't you taking why why are you assuming that they've got a higher percentage to get me in than I do when I know I can beat this catcher and I know I can beat this pitcher. And so it's just a different philosophy in how the game is is interpreted. And I think that was one of the things that I really really wanted to dig into as well. Um how this game has shifted, but also Ricky personally, that here's a guy who really was not one of the most popular people. He was one of the more disliked people in the sport his first half of his career. Right. And then by the end, people were talking about him like he was this combination of 
of Satchel Paige and, and Yogi Berra, where everybody had a Ricky story and everybody was talking about, was this story true? Was that story true? And all of a sudden he became this sort of beloved figure that we now wanted to celebrate when people really couldn't stand him. What did Ricky think of that? Like, what does Ricky think of, you know, I, I, I was, before you came on, I was telling you the story about standing next to John Olerud and saying, hey, I played with a guy in Toronto who wore a helmet as well when he was in the field or the, you know, the Ricky doesn't, you know, Ricky doesn't have tenure, Ricky has 18 years. I mean, all the stuff, all the stuff about Ricky. Um, what does he think about that? And, 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 and Howard, why does he think he became more beloved at the end of his career because i think he and and for people my age now people my age and ricky's the guy ricky's one of one of the guys i love ricky yeah it's a generational thing when ricky first came in the league get him when ricky came in the league in 79 you still had guys like red smith and dick young writing they they came from a newspaper radio era and ricky's a tv guy and you're not supposed to draw attention to yourself and Ricky had so much style, he was always drawing attention to himself, whether it was intentional or not. I think that Ricky is, when I was working on this book, one of the things that I had been saying to people was, if you think you're getting 300 pages of wacky Ricky stories, you've come to the wrong place. I mean, there's plenty of that in there. The last third of the book is all about when the legend becomes fact. It's all about the fact and fiction of Ricky. But Ricky was insulted by a lot of because Ricky's not dumb. I mean, there's a fine line between laughing with someone and laughing at someone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those Ricky stories aren't even true. But he's such a character and such an interesting, unique individual that they might as well have been true because he was so bizarre in some of the other ways. But... There's a, what I found really interesting about this, Kevin and, and Jeff, is that there was, there, there was a huge gap between the hilarious Ricky stories and actually interviewing Ricky. Mm. He was not a great, hilarious, fun interview, but the stories about him became hilarious. And that's, that's usually like when you talk to Reggie or someone like that, the interview and the stories are pretty similar. With Ricky, there's a pretty big gap between the two. Yeah. How close did he come to playing football, Howard? Well, if he, if, if he had the choice, he would have played football. I mean, he wanted to be the next O.J. Simpson. And he saw himself as a football player who just happened to be a pretty good baseball player. The reason why he played baseball was because his mother believed from a risk management standpoint, <laughs> you know, his whole career was going to end on one play. And that... Be, you know, being a baseball player was simply a better career call. But his heart was with football, and you could make an argument that he played baseball like a football player. He's very low to the ground, very physical player. He's a running back as a, as a leadoff hitter, and that's how he saw himself. Uh, one of the things about him as well that I found fascinating, and I really got this in Toronto, like one of my favorite interviews was coming up to FanFest a couple of years ago up in Toronto uh, before the pandemic, January 2020. And listening to talking to Pat Borders about it and Ola Root as well, and they were talking about how much how how much they couldn't stand him as an opponent, but he was a great teammate. And so this gap between what Ricky how Ricky appeared as an opponent against when he was in your clubhouse night and day. Yeah, that is how did how did he view his time in Toronto, by the way? Well, when I talked to Cito about it, Cito had wished he'd had him longer. Ricky Ricky's time in Toronto was the beginning of something that 
has become commonplace, which was the Hall of Fame level player has hired guns. And Ricky, the second half of Ricky's career was all about that. But remember, before that, there were really very few guys on a Hall of Fame path who were still in their early 30s who got dealt, who got traded. And then it became commonplace. Ricky sort of started that, uh, you know, the, the Blue Jays age trade really did start that. But Ricky loved Toronto. They loved him. I think that he wanted to get back to Oakland. There was a secret deal between Sandy Alderson and, and, and Ricky that if you do me this solid and go to Toronto, we'll bring you back in the offseason. So I think it was always a hired, you know, a hired gun situation. Obviously, one of my favorite, favorite Ricky stories was in 1994, after they win the championship, uh, for the Blue Jays win the championship, the A's go into Toronto, and as they're passing the gigantic billboard of Joe Carter and the time and date on the, on the billboard when he hits the home run against Philly, everybody on the team bus is having recollections about where they were when Joe Carter hit the home run, and everybody's going across the room, across the bus. And at the end, in the back of the bus, you hear this voice that says, I was on second base. <laughs> and of course, it's Ricky. And uh, it's interesting because uh, when I was doing a book in the Jays, I had a chance to talk to a couple of people about that. And people like Pat Gillick maintain that one of the reasons Joe Carter hit the home run was because he knew who was on second. And Mitch Williams <laughs> knew who was on second. And Mitch Williams... Yeah, I mean, you watch the pitch and tell me if it doesn't look yep. like a guy who's worried about who's on second base. It sure does, doesn't it? That's right. And Joe Carter was mad at Ricky for not taking the extra base, for not being on third. He says, yeah, you should have been on third base. And all I needed was a five ball to get us in. You you made life harder for me. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, right. that's great. Hey, Howard, one of the things I did want to ask you about, I had a chance uh, over the course of my uh my career doing this writing and, and radio to talk to Roy Shivers, who was a uh, uh, CFL uh, general manager, uh, e- executive. And he grew up, uh, he went to school with Bill Russell, Frank Robinson, Kurt Flood, Joe Morgan, Vatipins, and he was of that era. And I, I know you covered sports in Oakland. Tell us a little bit about how Ricky grew up in Oakland, because I think a lot of people look at California, go California was cool. Everything, everything was laid back and all that, but there were parts of California that were segregated, correct? There were parts of Oakland that were segregated. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Like people talk about this. One of the things that I wanted to do in this book was really talk also about the great migration from the South out to the North and the Midwest and the, and the West coast. And we talk about this in America in so many different ways. And even to the Underground Railroad up to Canada, we talk about this, but we never talk about how these African-American players ended up where they were in sports. And so what I thought was fascinating in this book was we've always talked about the incredible Oakland talent that Lloyd Mosby and Ricky Henderson. I mean, think about their little league team, Dave Stewart, Ricky Henderson, Lloyd Mosby and Gary Pettis on the same little league team. Wow. And we've talked about this with awe, but what we've never talked about is how did they get there? And so part of the first part of this book is really all about the great migration and how you had these unbelievable players from Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas, and they all ended up in West Oakland. And the reason they ended up in West Oakland was because of the segregation. Black people weren't allowed to live in other parts of the city until the mid to late 60s. And so, but in the the 40s and the 50s, the first big years, big decades of the migration, every, all the black people for the most part 
were forced to live in West Oakland, and that's why McClellan's High School was such a powerhouse with Bill Russell and Frank Robinson and Beta Pinson and Kurt Flood, and the list goes on and on, but the reason was segregation. Yeah. Howard, listen, uh, it, it sounds like it's a terrific read. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know we always appreciate your time, and, and be well, and, and, and good luck with the book. Thank you. No, my thank you. My apologies for not having them sent to you, but you should have one by now. We'll find one. We'll find one. Don't worry. Thanks, Take Howard. care. Take care, Howard. Thanks. Howard Bryant of the SPN. The book is Ricky, the Life and Legend of an American Original. And uh, yeah, get out and uh, and and and, uh, and and get it because the Ricky Henderson story is tremendous, and that whole the whole story of West Oakland in particular and the mm-hmm. athletes. Think about that for a little league team: Dave Stewart, Lloyd Mosby, Gary Pettis, and I, people who listen to me know Lloyd Mosby, favorite mm-hmm. Jay of all time. Mm-hmm. He just is, and, uh, and Gary Pettis and Ricky. It's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. He's an icon. Ricky uh, is. That's a. He. he I, I find it interesting about the the bigger bases. What well, what would a base dealer who made a career out of it think about bigger bases? Because you're trying to let other people catch up to something that you do better than those people do. Yeah. But he didn't like that. I wouldn't like it. Uh, you know what time it is? Very quickly, it's we're going to squeeze for a Barker's, Barker's back leg bits. Mr. Gann, thank you very much for joining us. Be honest, you don't remember Kevin Barker Absolutely as a player, not. do you? It's like 50 years ago we played. Good morning, guys. No, I drink too much. Well, I saw you in 2005 hit homers off scoreboards in the International yes, League, so I, I know how you roll. Mm. Uh, we're going to get this very quickly. We've got a ton of good questions. Don't worry. Uh, we'll save some of them for tomorrow as well. Uh, David in Mississauga wants to ask you about the play last night where Vladdy's glove exploded. Now, it didn't explode, but uh, where uh, Santiago Espinal threw the ball to Vladdy. The webbing came out. The ball goes through his glove. He gets charged with an E3. Uh, you know, and, and uh, Bark, I, unless I've missed it, I don't remember that happening. I don't remember the webbing coming out on a play very often. I've seen balls get jammed in gloves. Uh-huh. I haven't seen a ball go through a glove that often. I tried to remember. Not a first base. I tried to, yeah, I tried to remember if that's ever happened to me. And I do think, you know, a glove that I'd used all year, spring training the next year, you may have used it too much. It dry rotted. It had been rained on. It dried. Like that's when those things sort of shrink in the, that's when, you know, you can break the webbing of the glove. It's rare. Like for me anyway, that it's rare that I've, I've, I've not really seen that. It's yeah, again, this is, you know, I don't know really what the question is there, but I just think it's probably, you know, I, I do remember Kansas City, it rained. Uh, his glove probably got wet. He shoved it in a bag. It dried. Uh, you know, it gets a little shrinks or then the, the webbing starts to dry out a little bit more. And the more you odd, catch though. balls like and hard would, throwers. And you would think you'd notice different it. throwers. Not really. Really? Nah, you don't notice it till it breaks. How would you notice? I mean, Troy Tulowitz, you know, Troy Tulowitzki is the same glove for a bazillion years. It looked like he ran off over it. Yeah, exactly. But he could also tell when, you know, it needed flimsy. to be a little, need to be a little fixed up. He could also. Oh, yeah, tell. first baseman's gloves are a little different. I mean, yeah, Vladdy uses that's it so much. It's got the, you know, the hard, hard bottom part to it where you want to drag it on the ground. It's, I guess, sometimes it happens. Most of the time it doesn't. Kareem Nathu wants to know, is there a code around big league teams sharing info with each other? For example, if a team figured out Gossman is tipping pitches, are they going to strategically share that info with other teams or strictly keep the info within qu- their team? That's Kareem's a good question. Why, a yeah, why, question. Why, would you, why would you tell an, another team in your division 
so they could have the same advantage that you would have. You're trying to beat that team in your division. So I, I would think that doesn't go on a ton. Now, if you get around your buddy or on another team, you're doing some drinking and you accidentally let it out, hey, I know you're facing tomorrow. Don't be afraid to look. He does this and he does this. I'm sure that goes on, but to actually go out of your way and text a dude that's on another team that's in your division, and you go, hey, but next in, time I know you're, you're facing, try this. But in the playoffs, teams will, if especially teams that well, aren't in the playoffs, different. they'll playoffs exchange information. In division, if you, regular season, that's if you different. know a guy, you'll call up a guy and say, hey, we're facing, you know, we're, we're facing so-and-so. You guys saw him more than we did. What do you got on him? If you're that good, shouldn't matter, should it? Locate better. Go find some video. That's my answer. Thanks so much for joining us. Jays and Orioles, game two of that four-game series tonight. 707, first pitch on Sportsnet 590, the fan and Sportsnet. Blue Jays talk immediately following the game with Blair and Barker. Have yourself a great day.